If you remain standing, please turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We'll be reading from verse 19, uh, excuse me, 14 through 29. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. Hear now God's word. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the, uh, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose, and when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And this is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. If you've read the Gospel of Mark before, you're accustomed to some narrations dealing with demonic possessions and confrontations. And the theme that is repeated is that the main focus is not so much on the demonic activity or possessions themselves, but what we learn about Jesus, actually, about the power, authority, identity, and compassion of our Savior. We learn that the demons, who are essentially fallen angels, they could recognize who Jesus was. They can intellectually assent and acknowledge that this is the Son of God. They don't believe on him or into him, but they know that he is the Son of God. We learn that they had to submit to the authority and power of Jesus Christ no matter what. And we learn that the disciples who were sent away several chapters ago to do similar miraculous works in Christ's name, they also were able to heal the sick and exercise demons. Something is different in today's passage and encounter, and we'll learn again more about the character identity of Jesus Christ, but also teach us what faith is and how faith works itself out in the Christian journey, especially when there is doubt. And in our concluding sermon, in our short series on the matters of the heart, I truly pray and hope we'll come out of this encouraged, with our faiths strengthened, even when we can relate to the basic phrase the Father in this story uses, 
oh, I believe, help me in my unbelief. But before we get there, let's set up the context starting in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. This is normal. But for context, previously in this chapter, a super important, significant event already took place. If you have your Bibles open, you'll see it's the transfiguration of Christ on top of that mountain. The bodily transfiguration, the transformation of Christ, the light of glory, bright as the sun, beaming from the countenance and clothes of Jesus Christ. And if you remember what happened, Jesus was speaking on top of the mountain to Moses and Elijah, representing that Christ was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and talked about the upcoming journey to Jerusalem towards his death and resurrection. And if you know well, then a voice comes from heaven, God the Father saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This all being witnessed by the three inner circle disciples of Peter, James, and John. But this magnificent event was only for a short while. Jesus' appearance then goes back to normal, and they make their long march down the mountain. But one theologian remarked that the great Renaissance artist Raphael, his, his last work that actually remained unfinished before his death was a dual scene of the Mount of Transfiguration and the valley below. And this theologian is saying, on top of the mountain, you see light, glory beaming forth, and then below in the painting, only gloom and darkness, because essentially the disciples have no power to help a dire case of human need. A striking contrast that we're also indeed going to see in today's passage. And so Jesus and the inner circle come back to join the others. The crowd is glad to see Jesus, but there seems to be a bit of quarreling going on. Verse 16, and he asks them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. They were not able. We can't tell for sure if this was the actual case that brought such argument between the disciples and the scribes, or if they were arguing about some other theological point. But certainly this father is so desperate, he jumps right in. He maybe cuts in line, and he addresses Jesus right when he comes down from the mountain. The poor son has an evil spirit that has been tormenting him by overpowering him physically, making him deaf, deaf and mute. And this is more than a medical condition of epilepsy, as some of you probably already just thinking about that. We'll see Jesus rebuking the evil spirit in a moment. Nor is this a proof text that every ailment, disease, or something like epilepsy is a form of demonic possession. We need to make that clear. And so this father must have been looking for Jesus, but settling for his disciples. Okay, these are the disciples and the students and followers of Jesus. Maybe they can help. And as we noted earlier, the disciples were having much success in helping people with evil spirits or with sickness in previous chapters. But alas, this case seemed too difficult. And they were not able. Verse 19, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. You see, in the first nine chapters of Mark, we have seen the outward and internal frustrations of our Savior Jesus. And it seems at this point, this has come to a boiling point, a faithless generation. Jesus surrounded by constant unbelief, even amongst his followers, even amongst his 12 trusted disciples. 
there seems to be such lack of faith and trust in the person and power of Jesus himself. (laughs) But mind you, remember, this is even after the transfiguration. One theologian commented that this was similar to Moses' return from the mountaintop. Remember in Exodus 32, only to find the Israelites in vast unbelief and, of course, the infamous golden calf atrocity. Well, Jesus finds a similar faithless generation here. And this is also directed towards his own disciples who don't have enough faith to drive out this demons, or so we presume. But if we could just pause, I think we could all relate with the disciples. There are moments when we feel that our faith makes us soar through the air and we can just pray through anything through faith, just with fully trusting the Lord. But then there are other subsequent moments when we feel our faith is, is almost really running on empty. And just as was the case with the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, we too live in a faithless generation with rampant idolatry and unbelief. We struggle with this too, church. We need Jesus just as much as those present in this desolate region 2,000 years ago, here and now. And so, well, what happened? Verse 20, and they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Exactly what the father said happened. Further proof that this wasn't an ordinary sickness or disease. But as soon as the evil spirit sees Jesus, the oppressive physical manifestations take place again, as we can see in other demonic possession in Mark. And the language here in Mark paints the picture well enough. This wasn't a pleasant sight. I have many friends who had the gift of new birth and life and children and um, some nothing wrong and just perfectly normal and healthy. Others, some birth defect perhaps, or maybe some skin problem in the first year or two, and you just see the anguish in these young parents' faces. Can you imagine this father seeing his son go through these episodes over and over and over again? Verse 21, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Oh, but this is phenomenal. But if you could do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Much like the demoniac named Legion some chapters ago before this event, demonic possession in Jesus' day often showed that the evil spirits wanted to physically harm their victims. With Legion, it was self-cutting with stones. And here the wording shows that the demon wanted the son dead, either through fire or drowning. What a terrible plight. All of his life, event after event, this son was subjected to such torment. And think of his father being helpless again over all these years. And now, perhaps having even more doubt, since Jesus' own disciples were unsuccessful in helping him, he asked, if you could do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I'm out of all the alternatives. I, 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 I'm at my wit's end. I, I don't know what else to do. If you could do anything, Jesus, have compassion. Perhaps you've had moments recently where you wonder if God is even there, if God is near you, if he'll truly help you in your time of need, as we repeat often in the scriptures. You have moments, maybe recently, where you say, God, can you please just help me out here? Show me compassion. 
You say, Robin just read Psalm 91 about the actual refuge in you, God. Well, right now, O Lord, I have my doubts. And then you hear over and over these promises, but yet you wonder. You have doubt creep in. Your faith seems weak. Life obviously doesn't have to have these graphic images found here with this poor soul, this boy, to realize that we can have doubts just like the father did. In verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Jesus, in a way, rebukes his father. Of course, Jesus can do this. He's saying, trust in me. Trust and believe. Have faith. All things are possible if you trust in the Savior alone. And this is precisely what Jesus is alluding to over and over and over again in the gospel. That he is the solution right there in front of them. Now, of course, all things are possible for one who believes. It's not some magical formula to name it and claim it. There are some popular religious circles these days. They, they say just as long as you name it and you believe hard enough and claim it, it's going to happen for you. Many heretical churches will use this verse as a proof text to say, proof text to say as long as you really believe, you'll get that fill in the blank. You'll get that promotion. You'll get that thing you've been coveting over all these years. In a comical example, years ago I saw on social media a pastor asking for donations. Why? He needed his fourth private jet. He wasn't happy with his first three. So he was like, I, I need a new one. And he said he needed this jet to get across the world. And he argued, you know, if Jesus was alive today, he would definitely not be traveling around on donkey. So... Pitch in, $5, $5 million, pitch in to get my fourth private jet. And I'm sure this is a verse he would hold on to when making such an audacious request. All things are possible for one who believes. But of course, what utter nonsense. Jesus' rebuke has to do about the principle of faith and belief, a true godly trust, not a Santa Claus type of religion. And so how does this father respond? Well, with one of the most striking, accurate claims any of us could ever make. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. When you first read chapter uh, uh, 9, verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, we wanted to say, I believe. And I believe more than all these other people around you. Even your disciples, I believe more than them. No, he says, I believe, help my unbelief in the next breath, he says. I believe, help my unbelief. Growing up, I perhaps probably looked down on this father because I was probably ignorant and proud. I, I may have thought, how on earth could someone in the presence of Jesus be so uneasy in his own faith? But this is so important to see, and we can learn a lot from this. How can someone believe but also ask for help in their unbelief? It's obviously another Christian paradox. But this is the case for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ. We believe because God has enabled our darkened hearts to be awakened and to believe in the first place, to trust. But because we're not finished in our sanctification process, because we still have besetting sin... We still have moments of doubt and mistrust, bouts with despair, and so forth. 
I remember in my church planting days in, in Chicago, a college student came up to me and said, Robin, I, I need some counsel because another pastor said that I should never, ever doubt and that it's wrong for me as a Christian to doubt. And I said, well, there is an encouragement in Scripture to say it's, it's not a good place to be. We don't promote it. But I, would, but I said to her, I said, sister, oh, that is life. We believe, and then we also say, help us in our unbelief. The great reformer John Calvin once wrote about this. He says, these two statements, belief and unbelief, may appear to contradict each other, but there is none of us that does not experience both of them in himself, sometimes simultaneously, end quote. None of us that do not experience both of them in himself. Just as the disciples were alluded to having blurry spiritual vision previously in chapter 8, just a chapter before this, seeing but not seeing everything clearly just yet, this father indeed has faith but realizes he has a weak faith. This verse is not saying we have faith one moment and then lose faith and salvation the next. With that cycle going on and on and on, one of my friends said when he was in youth group, he went to all these spiritual rallies and he said he got saved 20 times every time there was an altar call he went up first in line and said god save me or some of some, some who went to billy graham crusades and said oh i've been to 20 of his crusades and and i went every time in the call to be saved we understand that right because we believe and yet there's doubts with unbelief but in the reformed tradition we believe once saved always saved we're not saying you have faith one moment and then you have a bad week and then you lose your faith. This is not what the text is saying. But rather every day, this is an accurate depiction of what the pilgrim Christian goes through. For those of, of us who truly have received the gift of saving faith, we pray, oh, I believe, but help me, God, in my moments of unbelief. Help me in my moments of darkness. In my moments of great distress and discomfort, in times where I'm tempted to look inward only, only to my own devices, only to realize at the end of the day, I can only trust in Christ alone. That cycle, my friends, that's being described here, that tension will continue all of your days until heaven. And so we can learn a lot from the humility and desperation of this new believer to boldly proclaim that we do indeed believe, but humbly acknowledging our lack of faith. But there is a word here that we cannot overlook or underplay, and it is the word help. He isn't saying, Jesus, I'm human, so what can you expect of meager old me? I believe, but I also have bouts with unbelief. He actually doesn't say that. He says, I believe, and please help me in my unbelief. This is opposite from last week's sermon on pride. To ask the Savior of the world for help is God-given humility. Humility that can help you in moments of doubt. But there, there is also a godly resilience to say, oh, but I realize, almighty oh, God, you can help me with my bouts of unbelief. I'm not just resigned to say, I believe, help me, uh, uh, I believe, and then I sometimes struggle with unbelief. He said, I believe, but I don't, but in my times of despair or unbelief or temptations to doubt, I don't want to stay there. So, God, help me. 
I think that's critical, friends, as application. It's not one thing just to be resolved and resigned to this, but to be resilient saying, God, I don't want to be like this. I don't want to struggle with this doubt. Help me. John Calvin said we must, quote, shake this off to pray against our doubt and unbelief. Don't just be resigned to it. And I think that distinction is critical. For those that want to wallow in unbelief, that's not a good place to be. Rather, we need to constantly ask our Savior for help. Help me. I think I, I try to pray this often. I believe, but please strengthen my weak faith. I don't want to stay in the shelter of doubts. I want to find refuge in the hope in my true Savior. Really, that means make my faith sturdier and stronger when I take communion. God, make my faith sturdier and stronger when I, all the ordinary means of grace, when I pray, when I read the Bible, make my faith stronger when I'm listening to a testimony of your grace in someone else's life. God, make my faith stronger because I believe. Help me in my unbelief. So make my faith stronger, O oh Lord. Strengthen so that I could stay upright when the storms will come. And recognizing that this is a journey, the growth of your faith, your understanding of Christ and the gospel, that reminder from Paul in Philippians 1, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This was the same journey these very own disciples were going through and will continue to grow through. This is what the Apostle Paul says, Philippians 2, 12 through 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, don't get this wrong. He's not saying work for your salvation, earn it. He's saying work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is for a believer that is already a believer in faith. Work it out, your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, just the, the critical point there, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so with reverent fear, we move forward even in times of doubt and bouts of mistrust. Every morning, every day, we renew our commitment to God. We renew our stance to say, I believe in you, Christ, all that you have promised to us through the gospel. And God, I already know there might be a moment later today where I might doubt you again or doubt the situation or mistrust you in some small or big way. Oh, but I, this morning, I, I believe in you. So verse 25, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. This is amazing. A twofold mandate, twofold command of Jesus. He rebuked the unclean spirit to come about, but also to say, Never again shall you return. Complete freedom for this boy. The demon convulsing him to fight to the last minute, but nevertheless, the demon must obey the commands of Jesus because Jesus again has authority over all things. And you'll see in verse 27, theologian. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson makes a note, that word at the very end of verse 27, you can underline it, you can circle it, you can highlight it, is a verb in the Greek that is talking about new life. 
But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And I'm sure this child felt alive in a way that he has never experienced before. That's gospel language, friends. That's gospel language. It was like he was dead, and then now he has new life. What a picture of the good news of Jesus Christ. And then verse 28, and when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why, why could we not cast it out? We tried so hard. We did all the things we did a month ago or two months ago. Why, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And you're saying, okay, hold up. That, that doesn't kind of fit the, the sequence that I was expecting. You would expect Jesus to say, because your faith is so small, but rather he says it's because you did not pray. And what is prayer? We mentioned that earlier to, to, uh, this, this morning in our liturgy. But really, at its most basic, it's talking with God. It's trusting in God. It's faith and trust in action. Dependence on the power of God is expressed through the humble means of prayer. You don't need any education. You don't need any background in church. Anyone who can go to the Lord in prayer. But was Jesus saying, oh, disciples, how long am I going to be with you guys? It's faith, it's generation. If you just pray two more hours, this could have been avoided. If you just pray three more, if you just prayed all night, then the solution would be there. Or rather, was Jesus putting this all together yet again for the disciples? You still lack faith. You cannot do ministry on your own strength and power. You need to pray. Meaning you need faith and a lifestyle of trust. And as John Calvin notes, this deeply rooted oppression this boy was suffering from, you can't just wing this, disciples. You can't just say, oh, I had some good bonds of ministry, so now I don't need God. I don't need to have this faith and trust. I have my degree, basically. So I could do it my way. And so I agree with John Calvin. You can't just wing this. You need to pray. Other passages said even added fasting to, to help you to pray, to combat such evil. Not as a formula, but as a way of expressing your dependence on Almighty God. But oh, to have this blasé attitude that just throw in some past formulas at this obstacle and we'll just wing this and, and get by. Jesus has a rebuke for them and Jesus has a rebuke for us. Oh, isn't this so true for us today, Westminster? We don't ask enough of God. We pray wimpy prayers. Jesus reminds us to pray boldly in the Gospels. And yes, we must, but with utter trust and faith. Have you ever caught yourself praying for things that seem reasonable enough to be answered? <laughs> like, you know, you're pretty much thinking, I'm going to pass that exam, but I'm going to pray it because it's reasonable that I am going to actually pass it. So I'll, but I'll, I'll just kind of throw a religious sentiment in there. That in your own feeble, limited mind, you'll only pray for things that seem plausible to be answered. Perhaps these disciples didn't pray well enough out of fear and mistrust of, whoa, this is something we haven't ever seen before. This is even after some of them saw the transfiguration and they were still struggling with doubt. But I cannot say for certain 
But we can say for ourselves, we lack prayer in the form of trusting and dependence. Last week we said pride is when we don't pray. Mistrust is seen in prayerlessness. Doubt enjoys the company of self-reliance. So church, let us ask God for strength and faith, for more trust, for a life that reflects such trust in our pursuit of him through prayer and word, but to understand that this can only be derived from God himself. To say to God again, I believe, help me in my unbelief, help me to seek things that are of you and not of this world, help me get a glimpse of how you see me through the lens of the finished work of Jesus and so that I could stop that, that cycle of always trying to earn your love and favor. Help me to see myself as how you see me. Grant me a glimpse to realize that truly all your promises are true and indestructible and that nothing can separate me from the love of you, Jesus Christ. Help me, help me, help me. Help us to trust you. And that's why I think this is one of my favorite narrations in all the gospel. There's just so much to unpack here. So as Calvin said, shake it off. Shake off unbelief with faith-driven, trust-driven, gospel-driven, childlike faith, brothers and sisters. And why? Well, for the ultimate praise and glory of our marvelous Savior. Not to say, oh, look at my faith compared to other people. Look how good I am. Look how cleaned up I am in my faith this week, Lord. No, it's, it's realizing in humility, only God can sustain my faith. And so ultimate praise and glory goes back to God. Who for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And at the end of the day, whenever our faith in particular is found to be strong or weak in our heavy, suffering-filled daily lives, we, by the grace of God, get the same strong Christ every time without fail. We say this quote over and over again. And so thanks be to God. You might have come here today or you might have tuned in on the stream with doubt, with fear, with anxiety, with pride. Oh, but thanks be to God, be encouraged that in your belief, even if it's an ounce, and even in your bouts of unbelief, this will be a safe place for you and me to remember God's grace together, not to compare spiritual resumes, but a safe place to say, how are you doing right now? And you say, oh, brother, I believe, but I'm in that place where I'm saying, God, help me in my unbelief. And I feel comfortable and safe enough to say that and confess that to you. Can you pray for me? Instead of let's just all pretend that everything in our faith is just perfect and I've been at Westminster for 40 years and so on and so on or I've done this and that for the Lord and I have all these past formulas memorized. But to have a safe place, a gospel community to say we're in the same boat. Let's pray for each other. Let's cling on to the hope that we have and yet point to Christ who holds us fast. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we want to humble ourselves before you, holy and almighty God. Oh, forgive us when we doubt you. Forgive us when we mistrust your promises. Forgive us when we seek the company of despair and darkness over light and fellowship. Because we are weak, we are sinful. 
but we are hopeful to know that you forgive us of all our uncleanness, all of our wrongdoings, all our wrong thoughts, all our wayward actions. Oh, you are faithful to forgive us. And so in that hope, help us to get up again, to take that little bitty step forward, to say, I want to walk in faith. Oh, help me in my unbelief. Thank you for the glorious grace that you present to us in the gospel, that you never fail, you never let us go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please.